Well, in this second week of our study of Jesus' parables, we're going to look at the story that Jill just read, the parable of the rich fool. Now, when you think of the word parable, you might think of a story, and you might think of, oh, you know, the moral of the story. It's a common idea, right, that we would look for some sort of wisdom to apply to our lives. But these parables that Jesus tells, they're far more than just morality. They're actually a vision for us, for you and for me, of the kingdom of God. And Jesus challenges all of us when we hear these stories to live the kingdom life, to live as kingdom bringers. And when we pray, you know, we studied the Lord's Prayer last month and we prayed, thy kingdom come. You see, that's what we're doing in these stories. We're saying this is what it looks like when we become kingdom bringers. When we, our lives point people, allow people to experience the kingdom. So as we look at this important story and try to see what it means for us and our ability to bring the kingdom, let's open with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these stories, the challenge to, bring, to be kingdom bringers, to bring the kingdom to this world now, to be used by you, Lord, that people might be able to see the amazing gift and the plan that you have and the gift of Jesus and eternal life. Teach us today, Father, to be rich towards you because you have been rich towards us. Bless our time in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, the context for all of this is important. Jesus has been teaching and many people are starting to follow. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 12, the beginning, you find thousands of people following Jesus, trying to get close to him. In fact, even trampling other people because it's so powerful and so amazing to be up close and see what Jesus is doing. He's touching lives. He's giving hope. He's feeding the crowds. He's casting out demons. He's calming the storms. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's teaching about the kingdom, a kingdom that could be love of God and love for one another, a kingdom that can reject the darkness, a kingdom that could follow and live where we could follow him and live in the light of Christ. He rejects or he calls out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy because they neglect things like justice and mercy in the poor. And he hangs out with, with normal, regular people. In fact, he hangs out with even the sinners, people considered to be called sinners, people with bad reputations. And so we get this vision that the kingdom is, is, is not just for the rich or some socioeconomic class. It's for everyone. So it's no wonder a thousand, thousands of people would follow. And there he is. He's teaching. And there's a moment of silence, and a man makes his way up front. He gets close to Jesus because he has something that he wants Jesus to do. And in a moment of silence, he yells out. And he says, look. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Kind of a shift in mood, isn't it? I mean, he's teaching about the kingdom, and all of a sudden, this, this you know, domestic dispute publicly put on display by this brother as he asks Jesus 
to be the rabbi, to be the judge that will make this division and, and call out his brother and say, tell him I'm right. I need my money. I need what is coming to me. Now, the question that's really being asked by this guy, when he, when he says this to Jesus, what he really wants, what's on his heart, is something that's on our hearts today, believe it or not. And that's the question. When will I get what is rightfully mine? Now, we may not be waiting for an inheritance. I get that. But every one of us has a vision for the future of something that we're anticipating, expecting, something that we believe will bring us satisfaction and fulfillment in life. And we're asking that question, when will I get what is rightfully mine? And so this man, as he asks the question, and it's interesting the way Jesus responds because he's a little gruff with him. He responds like this. He says, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? You see, the, the, the normal understanding of this circumstance by all the rabbis of the day would have been, indeed, you need to settle this, okay? Because Psalm 133, verse 1 says, it is, it is wonderful and pleasant when brothers dwell together in harmony. That would have been the expectation. But yet now publicly, Jesus is supposed to call out his brother, you know, make a scene. Maybe the brother's there. Who knows? And Jesus is saying, you know, why do you want me to be the divider? Why do you, I didn't come to divide people. I came, I came because I want people to love God and to love one another in a new vision for a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Why, why am I involved? He wants, he wants me, Jesus is thinking, he wants me to be the divider of not only his inheritance, but of his relationship. Because certainly that kind of public display would cause a relational rift between those two brothers. How good and wonderful it is and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in harmony. If you've ever had parents die, you know how quickly it can get very difficult an inheritance to divide. And yet, that's what Jesus steps into here. So Jesus, not losing any opportunity to teach, says, let me show you what's really going on in your heart. And let me, let me tell you and everyone who will ever hear these words why this question is so important and how you should respond to it. And so he says this. He says, um, and he said to them, meaning everyone there, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. You know, we don't use that word covet much anymore. You know, we know where it comes from, right? The Ten Commandments. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's house or wife or servants or animals or anything else. And so today, I don't think we think in terms of coveting other people's stuff. Right? Because, I mean, you know, it's, the idea is really we could go buy it, probably. It's not like I want that. I want what you have. It's just that I have an insatiable appetite. And that's what the word covet really means, an insatiable appetite. Now, we don't, we don't use the word covet. You know, we, we probably use the word like yearn for, right? We yearn for things. What are you yearning for today? What, what do you desire what do you wish 
for, hope for, long for. In Missouri, where I grew up, we had a term. We'd say we'd powerfully hanker for something. Got a hankering? Right? Some of you have heard that phrase, I think. That, you know, it's, it, that's what's in our lives and hearts all the time. We're expecting our life to be fulfilled by something that we're yearning for. Recently, we got a new car. We replaced Susan's 12-year-old Honda Civic. It was time, right? It was time, and so we got this new car. Now, she got the car, and I'm still driving another 12-year-old Honda Civic. So it's for me, I get to look at her pull away every morning in this beautiful new car. And, of course, she feels a little guilty, but, you know, it's, it's, it was time. And it's, it's like, okay, that's really a sweet ride, okay? And I look at it, and I get this hankering. <laughs> and then I get in it. You know, and I get in it and I discover stuff that I never knew existed that now I can't live without, like the, the rear end roaster button. <laughs> you guys got one of those? It's amazing, isn't it? It's awesome. But you see, here's the challenge for us. You know, as much as I, I want that, this, this idea of a new car, I got to be careful and guard my heart because. Well, you know, there's a reason why I'm not driving a new car, right? Because we could only afford one new car, actually. I mean, it's right to be a good steward of money in that way, to think about what that cost, the actual cost of that. We needed the car, but one was enough. But here's the promise. And this happens so often to us, and we've been trained this way as people. This is what happens to us. We're told to work harder because happiness is just around the corner. Work harder. And then if you work harder, happiness is just around the corner. But see, Jesus said your life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. Right? In other words, true life doesn't come from the abundance of all the things that you have. And then, well, what happens is you've got to earn more money. And then life is going to happen around the corner. Happiness happens, right? And then, oh, wait a minute. If you do that, you can buy more things. And guess what? Around the corner, you'll have happiness. But what do you find when you get around the corner? It's elusive. It's a lie. It's not there. So you just keep going and going and hoping around every corner that it's there. And Jesus is saying in that passage, look, money lies to you. Do you know that? Money lies to you. Matthew 13, 22 says the deceitfulness of riches. Money lies. And it was telling this man with an inheritance that if you get that inheritance, you'll really have life. If you get it, you'll really have it. If you don't get it, you're going to miss out on all kinds of things. And it's the same thing that happens with us. We think that if we can have it, whatever it is, just around the corner, that we'll have happiness, that we'll have true life. It's a lie. Because your life doesn't consist of the abundance of your possessions. So Jesus is peeling back that veneer. He's showing us the problem of the heart of that young man who wants his inheritance. Now, here's the challenge with our hearts. This is such a difficult challenge. You know, the problem that we feel in our heart, I mean, the way we feel in our heart, is oftentimes that's not the real problem that we're facing. 
This is what Jesus is saying. The, the problem you're facing is something else. You feel this. You feel like if you have these things, like you know this seat roasting button in your car, if you have them, then it'll be, bring somehow fulfillment. But no, it doesn't. That's not the real problem. The problem is that I'm facing is that I have this heart that can be captured by stuff. And I can, I can lose my way as it's captured. And he's saying to this young man that wants this inheritance, he's saying, look, what you don't realize is there's something far greater that you could gain than that inheritance. It's far greater. It's far greater what you could gain, but there's also something far greater that you could lose than losing the inheritance. And so he, he, he begins to tell them, an, tell them another story or tell this, this young man another story, a parable about a farmer. It's a difficult parable because it confronts all of us with the realities of our hearts and what we long for. But I don't know about you, but I would much rather be, be confronted by the truth of God's word than comforted by a lie. And so don't let money lie to you today. Don't let your possessions lie to you today. Let's look at this parable. It begins this way. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Now, the first point is that he's already a rich man. And there's nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with productive farmers. We need them or prosperous businesses, or getting a, a, a raise at work, or having your investments flourish. There's nothing wrong with that at all. God uses a prosperity in the world for a reason. In a broken world, he uses those resources, or he can use those resources for his purpose. But this rich guy, he has already a lot, and he gets more. In fact, God gives him more. He gives him the seed, and the land, and the rain, and the sun, to grow more crops. And he says to himself, wait a minute, what am I going to do? I have, I have nowhere to store this abundance. I have no place to put it. Now what's wrong with this picture, it's not the, it's not the wealth that's the evil, is the way he processes the answer to the question, what am I going to do? Notice that he starts just with the conversation of it with himself, which would be foreign to that culture because men would gather all the time and debate everything, either at the city gate or synagogue, but see, what riches often do is they isolate people. They isolate people. If you study the lives of rich people, you will find that out. They don't have many friends. Somehow or another, they have to separate. And that's what's happened to this man. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I'm going to have a discussion with myself. So he continues, he, and he does, and he does so without counsel. He continues that thought. This is what Proverbs says. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But, wise, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So he goes off. He's going to do this all on his own because he's rich and he's isolated. He's got a lot of money. He doesn't probably think he even needs the input from other people. And this is what he decides. He says, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my existing barns. Okay? I'm going to build larger ones. I think of Naperville sometimes when, you know, that happens, the downtown area, you know, teardowns. Happens all the time. 
I will tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice how many times he uses the word I and my. All those pronouns, I mean, just think of it. Everything's his. You know, it's my barns, my grain, and my goods, and even my soul. And here's what I'm going to do. And what he doesn't realize, what he doesn't understand at this moment is everything he has is on loan from God. Everything. And he's been put there as a steward to use it to invest in the kingdom. Not to ask the question, well, now I'm going to get what I deserve. Because look, for many years I'm going I'm to be able to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It means be euphoric, to be happy. He believes that around this corner he's going to find it. The elusive thing that we all want, that satisfaction and contentment in life, he thinks he's got it. And uh, this is a picture, of a, uh, a picture that a Dutch artist drew of him, of the farmer. Just look at his eyes. He's got it all figured out. He's been contemplating deeply. He's counting his money. He's got his plan. He's ready to go. Everything is, is set because he's in control, and it's all his. He's in control, and he doesn't share with anyone. Many years he has now to relax and eat and drink and be merry. And God says, you fool. You fool. Look at this. For this night, your soul is required. See, we all have a debt to pay. I don't even understand that, but we all have a debt to pay, and that debt is sin. The wages of sin is death. Death. And that debt, that debt is going to get collected. He's going to die this very night. He goes on to say, and the things you've prepared... Whose will they be? It goes right back to where this story started with the inheritance. Somebody else is going to get it. And then what will happen to it? You see, you don't get to take this stuff with you. So your life needs to consist of more than these possessions. And then he concludes with this statement. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Just focus on that phrase, rich toward God. What does that mean? We don't know what it meant for him because this is another painting by that same Dutch artist. And he paints him on his bed, his sleeping. Or the question comes up when you look at the painting, is that his deathbed? Does he die that night? We don't know. Does he have a Scrooge-like revelation and change his ways? We just don't know. But we do know, don't we, that we all will someday lay on that bed, that deathbed. He was a rich man who had an opportunity to be rich toward God and didn't take it. And then didn't get a chance to even enjoy his riches. You know, another very famous rich man died this week. His name's Billy Graham. You might not have known he's rich. Not because he collected offerings inappropriately. He was on a salary his whole life. But because of his books and speaking engagements. And he lived very frugally, if you read anything about him. He's going to be buried in a $250 plywood casket built in a 
built in a prison by prisoners. No padding or anything, bare bones. I love this quote. This is, so when my earthly life is ended, you'll wonder where I've gone. This is where the answer. I'll be with Jesus. That's where I am. And so here's a rich man who's invested in the kingdom, who made a choice every day, all through his life to invest in his kingdom. And now, like his nephew, he says, I refuse to mourn my uncle's death because I know where he is. You go out to North Carolina and you look at the Billy Graham complex set there. I was kind of shocked when I looked at it because on that property, do you know what he built? He built this. A barn. Not a bigger barn to store his treasures, but a bigger barn, a part of a complex for his ministry to use to get the message of the kingdom of God to others. It's an investment in the kingdom. And it's what makes this somewhat challenging because sometimes bigger barns might be used for that. I mean, the rich man could have built barns and filled it up with food and used it to feed hungry people. He could have stored the food right here in hungry people. So it's a little bit difficult question about being rich toward God. How do we actually do it? Is there a formula? Some people have taught that there is a formula. But it's no, it's not a formula. It's a decision you make almost every day of your life. Because you have to look, it's like, am I investing in my stuff? Is it all about me and mine? Or is it about me investing in the kingdom? And the first step for you and for me is to realize to be rich toward God, to accomplish being rich toward God requires that we understand that he has been rich towards us. Jesus hanging on the cross and he says the words, it is finished. Those words, that's, those are, that's an accounting term. And it means your debt has been paid. And now, even though you die, you will never die. You'll live forever because your sin debt has been paid. Philippians 4.19 talks about that he can meet every need through the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's done for us. He's been rich towards us. And, and, and that's the first step. Because if you don't understand what you have in Christ, it's going to be difficult for you to be rich towards God and response. So when we start this discussion, go right here to the cross and what Jesus has done. But then, as Christians, we have to live in this world, and we make money decisions every day. Have you ever noticed this phenomenon? Like, what happens, okay, your money and your, your heart are together. What happens when your money goes someplace? Yeah, your heart follows, right? It moves. Right? And to make a difference where it goes, you begin to, because you value what you invest in. You value what you invest in. And no matter which direction your money goes, sooner or later your heart's going to follow or you will stop investing in it. And the challenge of every day is that there are so many things that we have to spend money on. And we just have to be careful. We have to be on guard. Remember the passage? Be on guard. Guard your heart because those investments can capture us. They can capture us. Now, how do I know all this? Well, Jesus just says it a few verses later. He says, for where your treasure is so there your heart will be also. I mean, he tells us this. There are so many things competing for our hearts. 
I mean, and they're not all bad things, right? That's why this is so difficult. It's so challenging. I mean, there's things like food. Okay, that's unfair this time of morning, isn't it? Looks good, doesn't it? I mean, food that sustains us and gives us life. We value it, right? I mean, really, we value it. It is good. And, and, and our houses, I mean, we, we have houses, these little kingdom places we build up, and, and we watch hours of HGTV because we want to make them better. All right, now, am I the only one in the room that does that? Okay. It's great. I love those shows. I mean, we value education, right? Because if we, if we know more and have a degree, we can earn more money. Oh, and we value new cars, especially when they have heated seats, right? <laughs> and we value our entertainment. You know, we put money towards that. Netflix, you know, it's like a, anybody binge watch for four hours, meaningless TV, you know, because it just takes your mind off. And again, I'm the only one in the room that does that. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And it's baseball season because we have sports, right? Because, hey, the Cubs are in spring trading. Go Cubs, right? Cubs fans? Okay. All right. Any Sox fans here? Okay. Equal opportunity, right? Equal opportunity. We'll put their schedule up, too. There's at least one Cardinal fan in the room. That'd be Tony. So we'll, we'll, we'll get a nod to the Cardinals as well. But see, there's nothing wrong with all these things, but we're, we spend money on them all the time. And if we don't watch out with our possessions, we begin to trust them to produce happiness and meaning and purpose in our life. They grab our hearts because they've taken our money. And they become, they've become the thing that we trust in to bring meaning and purpose to our lives. And so when we get to this question, it's like, is it bigger barns or is it a bigger heaven? It's a difficult question because bigger barns might actually lead to a bigger heaven if it's used for God's purpose. But we need to be constantly on guard, watching our hearts and our spending decisions to say, how am I investing in the kingdom? That's the question. Am I a regular, focused person that says, look, I want to make sure that I can do whatever I can to invest in bringing this gift of Jesus Christ to the world so that people can experience the kingdom of God? You know, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and he said, look, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, I did rise from the dead. I did pay for your debt. It's paid. You have eternal life. Rest assured that that is yours. And that, you know why that's so significant? Because when we ask the question, when will I get what I rightfully deserve? What Jesus is telling us here is that I'm not going to give you what you rightfully deserve. Because what you rightfully, what we rightfully deserve is to be separated from God forever. He wants to reassure us today that he has been rich towards us. So that our hearts would be not captured by the things of this world, but be committed to this kingdom work. That we'd be investing in the kingdom. That we could be rich toward God because he has been rich towards us. I pray that that would happen in our hearts, continue to happen in our hearts as his people here at Trinity. Let's pray together.